Uh, thank you, everybody, for coming tonight. Uh, just a quick announcement before we start. Um, as it was said, thank you to Kirir Zalala for coming. He will also be here tomorrow night at 7 o'clock the same time. And uh, on Sunday night, he will be doing a talk at St. George's in the basement. As well, there will be a dinner. Uh, people will be gathering 4, 4.30 with a dinner to follow, and then Mr. Zalalis will be talking directly after that. So thank you for coming, and God bless us. Amen. suggestions. They didn't have to obey. They turned around and they went to the house of Lydia instead. They went to meet the Brotherhood, the brand new Christian Brotherhood. They went to encourage them. St. Paul needed to strengthen and encourage the brothers to remind them the very thing that he told the Christians of Lystra and Iconium when he almost lost his life and after that they went to, went to console him and he was encouraging them 
this very, very basic Christian truth that most of us need to understand very well that we must, we must enter the kingdom of God through many tribulations. It is necessary to go through many afflictions before we enter the kingdom of God. And this is the very thing that they wanted to brother, the brothers to know in Philippi. And according to St. James, this gives us the seal of authenticity that our faith is the true faith when we are persecuted. And St. Paul in Romans, he will talk about the significance of our baptism. That we were buried with Christ through baptism. We were buried into death. We were baptized in his death. And unless we die with him, we cannot resurrect with him. The death of our own egotistical passions is very necessary because these passions soldier against our soul. They go against the purity of the soul and the passions they war. They go against the health of our soul. So it is necessary to control and defeat these passions. And in doing so, we invite a lot of afflictions from the world of passions. Because if you do not go with the world, you will be accused. Those antisocial, those a person that does not have the kind of lifestyle that's normal. You're abnormal. This is not normal. Well, of course, as Christians, there's nothing normal about our life. We are baptized into a death, a death of this type of thing that people call life. I have a life. I have a life. But this life is actually a life that leads to death. Christ says very clearly, if you want to gain your soul, and soul in this respect means if you want to gain your life, you must lose it. And if you want to, if you want to uh, find it, you must lose it, and so forth. If you lose your life, if you lose this life of passions, then you will find true life. And this is the kind of life that St. Paul is preaching to the Greeks. Five, actually, out of the 14 epistles of Greeks on Greek soil, even though back then a lot of the Gentiles all over the place, they spoke Greek. Still, uh, you know, in the Greek land, we have the Philippians, Thessalonians, and of course the Corinthians, and five out of those 14 epistles went to the brothers who accepted this baptism and they accepted Christianity. They were waiting. They were eager as the men 
in the dream called St. Paul in Troas. St. Cyril of Jerusalem teaches his catechumens that we die in Christ ikonikos, symbolically, but we resurrect with him in reality. The resurrection is a real one. We make him a representative in his death. He went on the cross and he represented all of us. And we need to believe in Jesus Christ. And then he becomes our representative. And then once we die with him, iconikos, iconically, and also in our passions, then we will resurrect with him. Because you have died and your life has been hidden with Christ in God. And when he appears during his second coming, when he appears, Christ, who is your life, then you will also appear in him in glory. And St. Isaac Assyrian, the great ascetic of our church, he expands on this and he puts things into perspective. And St. Isaac did tremendous work on the aspect of humility. What is a humble person? And we'll expand on this on Sunday's dinner. What is this thing that we call humility? It's the true appraisal of what is real. The true appraisal of ourselves. The true appraisal of this life. That is humility. And he says that a person, when he reaches humility, he understands a number of things. Strong is the person who finds satisfaction in the temporary trials and afflictions because in these the life and the glory of his victory is hidden. A strong Christian is someone who glorifies God even under difficult circumstances. You lost your job? Thank God. Maybe God is trying to test me. There's an illness in the family? Thank God. A person who thinks like this is beginning to progress in Christ Jesus. Illumined, but is menos, is he who has recognized the bitterness the bitterness which exists in the nice things, in the sweet things of this world, and is constantly involved with matters of his salvation. Someone who is illumined sees how this world acts, the parties, and, you know, the running around, and all these things that eventually leave the soul empty and defunct. <coughs> Wise is the person who tries to exit this life winning the eternal one. That's wisdom. The most intelligent human being. A fool is that person who's always striving to earn mundane earthly things. 
school, this evening, tonight, your soul is expected of you. The Epicureans, eat, drink, and be merry. Enjoy yourself. Life is short. Life is not short. Life is eternal. The world is a prostitute. This is very graphic. The world is a prostitute who tries to use her sinful beauty to attract us and to strip us from every virtue while waiting to kick us out of her house at the hour of our death. That's the definition of the world from St. Isaac the Syrian. I believe yesterday we celebrated uh, the memory of Saint Martinianos, great saint. At the age of 18, he became an ascetic, and he excelled in asceticism. He was a hermit. And uh, after 25 years of struggle, the devil never left him alone, of course. That was always trying to attack. So, the devil doctrined the mind of a prostitute who made a bet to go up to the mountain to see if she could seduce him. So, she went outside dressed like a pauper. She knocked on the door, pretended he was, she was fearful. Father, please let me in. It's nighttime, and if I stay out here, the animals you know, are going to kill me, and it's going to be on your soul. Herman didn't know what to do. Eventually, he said, I'm going to take a chance, and he left her in. And in the morning, she had a change of clothes, and she began to allure him. After 25 years of asceticism, he began to see himself slip. He was beginning to have to, to fall onto the second stage, the second stage of uh, sin. The first one is the offense. The initial offense of the logismo, of the thought, is not sinful. But when we begin to have a dialogue with the possibility of sin, now it becomes sinful. When he felt that he was losing the battle, He went to extremes. He went and got a lot of woods, lit a fire, and he talked to himself. So, okay, Martinian, go ahead. See if you can bear the fires of hell. And he put his hands on the fire and began to burn and sizzle his hands. And, of course, this woman fell over and passed out. She couldn't believe that he would do this, and this was enough to change her. She became a nun. The reason why I'm bringing this up is not to think, but because you know, we have been Christians for a few years, and we have been reading a few books, and because we may do a combo skinny now and then, let's not think that we can let our guards down when it comes to these sins. The demon of fornication, 
can infect someone who is a hundred years old, even at the deathbed. So we should never leave our guards, our guard down in these situations. So St. Paul, after he strengthened the brothers, he did not depart out of obedience to the magistrates, but he left because of their eagerness. He left because he was very eager. He was on fire for the gospel. In Philippi, they had such a tremendous miracle, the earthquake, the change of the uh, prison, uh, the prison guard, the exercising of the demon, that was enough to hold the city for a while. So they left to go to other cities. And the constant chase of St. Paul by the devil proved to be very beneficial for the gospel. See, God allows these things. He knows our nature. So he allows the devil to do certain things which turn to be very beneficial for the gospel. We had a similar thing with a great lay theologian, Panagopoulos. Many of you may have heard some of his cassettes. One of the great lay theologians of our century in Greece. When he first began to speak in Athens, uh, this was not a very easy thing to handle from the theologians of academia. How dare you? You're not a theologian. You're a, a non-Halki graduate. You haven't been to Oxford and some of these extraterrestrial theological schools, the heavyweights, which teach Protestantism and a number of other things. But they give you a diploma that you can hang on a wall. So he had a tough time being accepted in Athens. This kind of forced him to start going to the abandoned country outside of Athens and bringing the gospel all over Greece. And then after that, he was invited to Canada. Had he been given a position in Athens, he probably would have stayed there with an audience of four, five, six hundred people. It's very hard to leave when you have an audience like this. But you see, when God doesn't give you an audience, <laughs> you got to go. you got to travel. You see, it's very difficult. You know, when you have a great audience and you're established, you stay there, and that's it. St. Paul was not given an audience like that. In Philippi, he had a few people, Lydia and a few others. Not a great success, even though the Holy Spirit called him there by a vision. And now by the devil chasing him, you know, he can't stand, so he has to run from place to place. And this becomes very beneficial. He's a great strategist. Everywhere he went, he would teach, find the most fervent brothers, and put them in his place. From Philippi, he'll find co-workers, Lydia, the prison guard, and then in, uh, in Thessaloniki, when we're going to study in the next tonight and tomorrow, we will see that he found co-workers, Aristarchus and Secundus, the same thing in Varia, 
is going to find co-workers and establish them and build the church. So the fury of the devil is pushing St. Paul from place to place. And after Philippi, they left and they passed from Amphipolis. Amphipolis was a great city, one of the four great cities of Macedonia. The Romans divided Macedonia into four different regions. One of the cities was Philippi, the other was Amphipolis, Thessaloniki, and Veria. And St. John Chrysostom says that he was a great strategist. He would go to the big cities and build reservoirs for living water. And then the living water would flow to the other smaller cities. That's what St. Paul did. So now in Thessaloniki, a great city, an ancient city, and the question that I've been asking for a while, what is Thessaloniki named after? Who had the name Thessaloniki? Nico. Alexander's sister. Correct. His sister was Thessaloniki and to this day, we have the great city of Thessaloniki, a wonderful city. I visited there in 1978. Earthquakes and all, it shakes constantly. Great history, and also with a lot of a lot of uh, Christian history, we have, of course, the uh, the Church of Saint Demetrius, <clears throat> and. In those years, Thessaloniki was under Roman rule. And about 140 BC, a lot of Jews came from Alexandria and they settled in Thessaloniki. Seems like a lot of them were concentrated there because they established a synagogue. The synagogue was still there. I don't know uh, if it's still there to this day, but about a century or a century and a half ago, was close to the port. And St. Paul, according to his custom, he would first go to his countrymen. He loved his countrymen greatly. And even though a couple chapters before, we read that when he was in the Antioch, uh, in Antioch of Pisidia, he was so exasperated with him because of their envy and the troubles that they gave him, that he told them that because, because you judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. He told them this a few weeks before, possibly. But he can't get himself to do it. He loves his countrymen and First chance he, he gets his right back in the synagogue. So he goes to Thessaloniki and he is having a dialogue with them for three Sabbaths, three Saturdays, three consecutive Sabbaths. And it's quite possible that even during the week he was visiting the synagogue and he was speaking to them from the scriptures. Now, the normal teaching in a Jewish synagogue was catechism. 
It was not a dialogue. It was not a form of a dialogue. It was simply someone would teach. It was a format of a lecture. And the discussion or the teaching was always from the revealed Word of God. For some reason, uh, in this synagogue, St. Paul changes the format somewhat, and he's beginning to have a dialogue, possibly questions and answers. And he is beginning to demonstrate to them about the Messiah, connecting the Old Testament with what just happened in Jerusalem, and he simply wants to demonstrate to them that the Messiah is Jesus. And all the genuine teachers of the gospel use the same format. We concentrate on biblical truths. We work with the scriptures. Unfortunately, that's not the case today. Today, a lot of the modern theologians begin to involve philosophy, psychology, all kinds of different elements into the sermon. Uh, a genuine worker of the gospel will and must always stay within the boundaries of the revealed word. This attempt to somehow decorate the sermon with uh, philosophical schemes and psychological uh, conclusions, it impoverishes, impoverishes the gospel and it takes away the living water of the gospel and makes it a secular, a secular sermon. Unfortunately, this happens a lot even in today's Orthodox realm. The idea of using icebreakers at the beginning of a sermon. And in a setting like this, that's acceptable. However, in the church, it is a crime. It is a sin to start the sermon with a joke so we can loosen up and relax and laugh. Because St. Gregory, the pious one, the spiritual father of Simeon, the new theologian, says there is no greater sin to laugh during divine liturgy, to laugh while you invoke the Holy Trinity. Start out divine liturgy in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is a very holy period. We are in the presence of the awesome God. And at this point, we stand with fear and awe. So unfortunately, because you know a lot of our theologians have studied abroad, and they are imitating secular speakers. And for the sakes of a few cheap laughs, you know, we do this type of thing, which robs the audience from the fear of God. 
the, the Orthodox sermon needs to be to be wheat and not chaff. Philosophy was useful before Christ. Now there's nothing that philosophy can teach. Plato, Aristotle, as we'll talk about when we talk about St. Paul going to Athens, you know, they had a few things to say. But now we have the revealed word of God. These philosophical systems, they help people somewhat. But after Christ, St. Paul says, they are empty deceit. There's a book out by the name of The Mountain of Silence. I don't know if you've heard of it or read it. And this writer, who happens to be a Greek Orthodox, does a tremendous job in bringing out some of the mysticism of Holy Mountain, the miracles of Father Pisius, and also the work of their fathers. He does a wonderful job. It's very well written, extremely well edited, but at the same time, it mixes everything up where you really do not know what the author believes in. This is not a book of Orthodox catechism. Philon. Philon. He tried to interpret the entire book of Genesis philosophically. Philosophically. It's like a lot of people try to do today. Adam wasn't really a real man. It's just the, it is the personification of humankind. No. We try to philosophize. Bishops do this. It's unfortunate. St. Paul was explaining and demonstrating that Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead, and he was doing this from the scriptures, from the Old Testament. And again, this is the genuine methodology for reaching someone to begin to show them and demonstrate them that these things were written thousands of years ago. Look, right here in Deuteronomy, it says that Israel will be a nation again. This is a prophecy. You see it right here. In the Psalms, we read that they didn't just pierce. The translation says pierce. They pierce Christ's hands, the Messiah's hands. No, the Greek word is orixon. They dug into his hands. They dug into his hands with the nails. They didn't simply take something and pierce them. They dug into his hands. Orixon. These are prophesied. Thousands of years ago. And when we show these things, when we show the scriptures, this is very powerful. It's a very powerful testimony. So St. Paul began to present the applicable scriptures. And this is what we do. We present the scriptures to the audience, to people who are interested, to demonstrate what we believe in, to convince them. 
Actually, we speak, the Holy Spirit convinces. St. Chrysostom says that we speaking is ours. The convincing is up to the Lord. St. Paul was speaking, and the Holy Spirit, the Lord, was opening the heart of Lydia. But we need to know the scriptures. We need to study the scriptures. And looks like the Jews back then, they studied the scriptures. Especially in Veria, as we'll talk about tomorrow night. A couple of weeks ago, while I was getting ready for work, a couple Kiliasts, who are Kiliasts, Jehovah's Witnesses, they were at my door. And they started. Um, would you say that a lot of evil exists in the world today? You know, the introduction of their spill. I said, listen, let's put that stuff aside and let me ask you a question. What do you think? That's what we do. Let's not talk about this or that. And, you know, the center is Christ. Listen, let's put all that aside. Let's talk about Christ. What do you believe about the person of Christ? Well, he's the Son of God. The Son of God? Who is Christ? The Son of God? But you are the Son of God. I'm the Son of God. We're all called son of, sons of God. Who is Christ? Well, he's the Son of God. Yeah, I know. He's called that in the Scriptures. But about Thomas? Why does Thomas, after the resurrection, he calls him what? My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. And then we have this knockout punch for them because this this is so explicit because they studied the Old Testament and this is very powerful we go we go to Isaiah 44 6 in Isaiah 44 6 we read I am the first and the last and besides me there is no God now who's speaking the great Jehovah, of course. Okay. So, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no God. That's what Isaiah says. Now, let's go to Revelation 1.17. Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. Now, who's speaking? The first and the last is who? Jehovah. Didn't you just tell me that? In Isaiah? But here, you mean your Jehovah was dead? You believe in a dead God? You have no God. You ought to become Orthodox Christians because you do not have God. You see, your Jehovah died. <laughs> so, who's Jehovah here? Who's the first and the last? Jesus Christ is your Jehovah of Isaiah 44, 6. But we need to know the scriptures and we need to study and know these things. This is what St. Paul was doing. He had a methodology and he went in and he wanted to prove to them, look, this Messiah that you're expecting, he already has come. He's here. His name is Jesus. And this format was followed by our church fathers. 
Ariathanasius, Basil, Polycarp, Chrysostom. They studied the scriptures. St. Nicodemus of the Holy Mountain, he knew the Psalms by heart. By heart. Church fathers read the New Testament every day. The entire New Testament. And they knew the scriptures. And because we don't have that kind of time, we depend on the church fathers. If we ignore the church fathers, we automatically slip into Protestantism. So St. Paul was using a stereotype sermon, even here in Thessaloniki. He was exposing the two poles, the two basic characteristics of the Messiah, the glorious side of the Messiah, and also a suffering Messiah, a glorious but also a suffering Messiah, and that the Messiah is Messiah is Jesus. So this is the standard sermon in all the synagogues, with the exception of Athens, why the Athenians did not read the scriptures. They were Stoics, were Epicureans, the two philosophical schools that survived. There were a few of them were also, others were there, but the Stoics and the Epicureans uh, were the most prominent philosophical schools of, uh, of Athens at the time when St. Paul got there. And, uh, you know, it's been said that there's about three, 300 places of worship uh, historians who talk about Athens, they say that uh, as many trees as we have out on the roads today, that's how many statues the Athenians had all over Athens. But there he had to use a different methodology because they didn't know the scriptures, just like when we speak to a Muslim, we cannot possibly use the scriptures. They're irrelevant to them. The same thing with an atheist. You know, we have to use a different type of methodology. But when we're speaking to other Christians or people who are, uh, you know, marginal Christians, then we can strengthen and bolster their faith by pointing out the scriptures, especially the prophecies. However, the nationalistic mentality of the Jews, greatly influenced by the rabbis, and because of the many persecutions and the many wars that they had, they made a huge mistake in the interpretation of the prophets. The rabbis managed to ignore the words of the prophets about the reality of a suffering Messiah. They only concentrated on a glorious Messiah was going to be exclusively theirs. They were the precious people of God, and God was promising to them that he would come only for them. Operiusios laos, the most precious people of God. So they ignore scriptures about the Messiah also liberating the nations, and they ignore especially the scriptures of a suffering Messiah. Even though the entire chapter of Isaiah 53 
talks about the suffering of the Messiah. If you read Isaiah 53, it's like reading uh, Holy, the Gospel of Holy Friday. The same thing with Psalm 21 or 23. It's like reading uh, the Gospel of, of Holy Friday about a suffering Messiah. He was cut off from the land of the living. He poured out his soul unto death. He bore the sin of many. And especially the Messianic Psalms as well. They divided my garments and cast lots upon my vesture. All these prophecies didn't mean a thing to them because their hearts were earthly materialistic. They were expecting a Messiah to free them from all the occupants of their land and now the occupation of the Romans is very costly to them. So this idealism of the Jews and their expectations of a nationalistic and exclusive Messiah forced them to believe about a conquering Messiah of the sword. They figure even Elijah left this world with a chariot so their Messiah was going to come back in might. They could not possibly imagine that the great conqueror great conqueror of their hearts is not the sword but love that is the great conqueror the Messiah would conquer their hearts not by force but by suffering by love by sacrifice this was going to be the powerful message of the Messiah and because of their idealistic and carnal expectations, they missed the words of the prophets. They persecuted the prophets when they asked them to repent. So they were not expecting a suffering Messiah. And that's why they would say, "When if you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. Show us your power. Even though he showed them a tremendous number of miracles. Again, our Messiah chose to conquer their hearts with love and willingness to suffer. And this is the ultimate love of our Creator, to sacrifice, to give up His own Son and the life of His own Son for the world. And this is the sacrificial power of the Orthodox Gospel. This is central to the Orthodox Gospel the early church embraced the idea of suffering for the sake of Christ. And that's why the early church had so many great martyrs. Countries may be conquered by the sword, but hearts will be conquered by our love, patience, and the life of Christ who forced no one to stay
stays at the door and knocks. Fanaticism does not belong in Orthodox Christianity. We don't force people. We don't agree with what's happening on the Holy Mountain these days. Force is not the way of orthodoxy. It is the way of the world. It is not the way of Christ. Christianity is passion and resurrection. We put to death our sinful nature. We die with Christ so we can resurrect with him. There's one exception where force can be used in Christianity. One exception. And this force, this violence is to be done against us. The kingdom of God is to be taken by force and the force will take it by force. The kingdom of God suffer violence. Very uh, unclear translation. Viazete is the Greek word. However, this force is supposed to go against our own sinful, egotistical passions. Asceticism. That's what, that's what this verse talks about. The area of asceticism. We fight against our sinful nature. Put to death your sinful nature, St. Paul talks about. However, the gospel today is not very easily accepted when comfort is not included. We want a comfortable gospel. We don't talk about repentance. We don't talk about struggle. We just want to be good people, good Christians. And somehow... Because we are better than the people in jails and a little bit better than the drug addicts, then God is just going to bless us with his kingdom. It is, this mentality is opposite to the Orthodox uh, faith and to the Orthodox gospel. I believe St. Cilion captured this greatly. Keep your noose, your mind in Hades and despair not. Most Christians today keep their mind, they keep our mind in paradise. We do good things, we're good people, we go to church. We give alms and we tithe and we are good stewards. Oh, God will save us same dilemma and the same problem that the young man had when he approached Christ. I have kept the commandments. Kept everything from the time I was very young. So what else must I do? He expected Christ to say, you have done well. Okay. Christ says, what if you want to become perfect? If you want to become perfect, sell everything you have and come and follow me. 
You see, he had, he was content with himself. He was satisfied with his, with his spirituality. These things I have done from the time I was very, very young. Look at me, I do a little bit better than the others. Exactly what the Pharisee will say. Sunday's Gospel. Christ wants us to be perfect. And he sees very clearly that unless we involve ourselves with asceticism, these virtues that we have are going to be robbed. He could see that all the commandments that he kept and the virtues that he had, they would be robbed possibly from the demon of greed because the young man had great possessions and eventually he would lose the fight. So he told him, get rid of it, sell everything, come and follow me. He left Perilipos in great sorrow. So St. Paul is speaking in the synagogue and in the synagogue there are proselytes possibly Greek converts to Judaism they are listening to the message and they are becoming thrilled and for three Saturdays things are going extremely well But when the Jews saw that a number of Greeks were coming in to share in their Messiah, they became full of envy, the scripture says. They became full of envy. And this they will do at every synagogue and all through the centuries. But we will continue on this tomorrow night. Yeah, there is a monastery in the Holy Mountain. I thought the whole world knew. <laughs> it's all over Greek news, you know, all over the Internet. You know, that's what's so terrible today. Something happens and we can't contain it. It just spreads very quickly and it becomes exaggerated. Um, you know, we do have a number of monasteries on the Holy Mountain. One of the monasteries is called Esfigmenu. And uh, they're very zealous. Uh, they are extremely zealous about the the old calendar very patristic and extremely firm in these matters and for the last 30 years they have refused to memorialize the patriarch they point a few things out that uh, we don't feel that you have represented us at this point because some of your actions have not been very orthodox. And if you change these ways, we'll come and kiss your feet. But until then, you know. And even though they have done this even for the last patriarch, uh, Demetrius, and probably Athenagoras, and, uh, you, know, uh, you know, the patriarchate at this point has decided to use force to get them out of the holy mountain by cutting their water off and uh, you know, uh, cutting their electricity and again 
this is not the way you know, that uh, St. Gregor the theologian and the rest of the church fathers are but these men and again I, we have read some of their publications they get to be rather extreme at times you know. uh, however it's their prerogative you know, they don't. I don't believe they bother any anyone. They have not convinced any other monasteries to follow their way. You know, they're the only ones. They have been there for years, and uh, you know, lately in the last 30 days, they were given an ultimatum to leave Holy Mountain, or they would be forced out. And again, this is not a positive thing for our faith, where we have so many other issues. We have 500 heresies in Greece alone. You know, we have over a hundred New Agers running around Greece, Buddhists, and uh, you know we we have all demons there. And here we are trying to silence a few monks who happen to have guts. Next question, please. Sure, they are. It's just that we need to search. We need to search, and um, uh, yeah, we need to carefully examine the bookstores and uh, in Athens. And uh, you know, we need to have these books. I'm sure some of the great theologians, like Trumpellus, and uh, they have worked on these. Uh, George and Nicopolis, you know, they have volumes upon volumes of these books. But again, they might they might not be applicable to everyone. Uh, I know that our time is limited, but it's good to have them. And you know, th those of us who attempt to teach, to feed and feast on those because it's really just tremendous when you read, uh, you know, some of the volumes of Joe Yanakopoulos on uh, Daniel, in the book of Daniel. You know how he interprets the seventy weeks, and uh, you know it's really. It's uh, it's wonderful, but it does take time, and uh, you know, we would be extremely fortunate, I, I believe, if we got to the holy habit of studying the New Testament and the Old Testament, you know, and uh, I feel like a lot of the prophecies will begin to illumine us as we read more and more. You know, we come to a very blessed point where we begin to see Christ in the Old Testament when we read the Psalms. And, you know, we begin to see the person of Christ, you know, in the Old Testament. Some of the prophecies, uh, we, in due time, you know, they'll become obvious to us. But, you know, it takes effort. Uh, it's the method of Jericho. You know, the Word of God does not surrender itself very easily to us. You know how, you know, Jericho fell. The Israelites had to go around one time twice, three times, four times, five times. And then the last day, the last day, they ran around with with great voice, and their walls just fell. Sometimes we need to go over and over and over and over these scriptures. You know, and then the light of God, seeing our eagerness, will come to give us a taste. Or, or misto, even on this earth. 
It's wonderful. With the uh, with the Old Testament prophecies, yeah, a lot of the I usually by listening to a lot of the tapes of Father Panasius Mitilineos, I kind of collect them. You know, there's a great prophecy in Job. I believe it's in the I believe in the ninth chapter of Job when Job prophesizes that he will walk on the waves of the sea. Even in Job, you know, just amazing. But uh, Father Athanasius, we must pray for. He just fell and broke his hip, and uh, he has been in the hospital. His heart is very weak, and we pray that uh, you know God restores him and uh, allows him, for our sake, for many years. You know, he has done a tre- tremendous work. But uh, we're talking about 40, 50 years of uh, you know uh, many, many hours of studying on a daily basis. So, you know, these volumes and these, this wealth is out there, and we need to keep searching. Yeah, that always enthused me, you know, right uh, to uh, biblical prophecies about the resurrection. You know, I, I just find that fascinating because, you know, St. Um, Peter talks about this. You know, when we have history, we have the New Testament. When we mix the historical events with prophecy, it's like mixing water and cement. It just becomes concrete. You know, it is. It solidifies our faith. There's no prophecies in Islam. There's no. There's nothing like that. There's no prophecies in Buddhism. Nothing. Nothing at all. Only Christianity, where you can find thousands of prophecies. I was mentioning to you uh, during Christmas, I believe, it was even prophesied that Christ will milk and honey, milk and honey he shall eat. And we can go in the Gospel of Luke right after the resurrection, and we will see that he ate a honeycomb. (laughs) Because uh, it's it's just... uh, Amazing, you know, to see how alive, you know, the Word of God is. Όλοι μαζί διεφών τον αγίον πατέρων ημών κύριε Ιησού Χριστέ ο Θεός ελέισον και σώσον ημάς αμήν. I'm just going to say quickly again for anybody who might have come in late, uh, there will be another talk tomorrow night at seven, and on Sunday there will be a dinner. Starting at 4, 4.30. mentioned that these tapes will be available at the dinner. These are the four tapes that we did here. Okay. And uh, the last time the Kiddo Zalalis was in Toronto, he did a series of talks uh, about Apostle Paul in the beginning of his journey, especially entering into Philippi. So the tapes will be available at Apostle Paul. Will we be selling them at the dinner, you said? It will be the, uh, for, the, um, for the cause of the monasteries. Yeah. Okay. So all at the, uh, at the dinner uh, for a price that the brothers will decide. And that will go towards the monasteries. Okay. <laughs> 
Yeah. 